0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Hello and welcome to Sport Sportbox from Jeff and myself. Here are your headlines today. Asian equities fall broadly into the red and U.S. futures are led lower by the Nasdaq as Treasury yields rise in expectation of a strong action from the Fed next week. The Bank of Japan raises its inflation forecast and issues an upbeat view on the economy, saying risks are generally balanced.
0: German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock arrives in Moscow from Kiev for talks with her Russian counterpart amid heightened tensions between Russia and
2: Ukraine. We are ready for serious dialogue with Russia because diplomacy is the only viable way to defuse the current highly dangerous situation.
0: And Eurozone finance ministers edge towards a new debt reduction plan for the bloc while Austria's finance minister tells CNBC he backs tougher rules.
3: Debts are debts, and um, either whether they are green or not, uh, they stay debts. And uh, I think we should uh, come back to stricter rules uh, to get um, a budget path.
0: So let's open up the programme this morning talking a little bit about the Bank of Japan and their inflation expectations. And uh, if it wasn't Japan, you'd look at the amount that they've nudged these expectations higher and you'd think it wasn't a big deal. But when you're talking about an economy that spent well over two decades trying to grapple with deflation rather than inflation, then it is notable that in this latest meeting, the Bank of Japan says it plans to maintain ultra-loose monetary policy even as inflation expectations tick higher. So in its quarterly outlook, the bank has kept its short-term interest rate unchanged at negative 0.1% and pledged to guide long-term rates to around the 0% mark. However, it has raised the inflation forecast to 1.1% for the year, up from 0.9%. Although, you know, of course, global central banks have this 2% target and 1.1%, even at the higher end of expectations here in Japan, is still well below that 2% target. The bank has said inflation is being driven by external factors like the supply chain problems rather than the post-pandemic recovery. And it is, uh, Karen, also perhaps worth pointing out they also nudged up their GDP forecast from 2.9% to 3.8 percent. So that is a more sizable move. But it is notable, I think, given the deflation issue that Japan is now able to say that inflation expectations for them could be running a little hotter.
1: Jeff, the slightly more upbeat view on the economy from the Bank of Japan not doing much to move the markets forward. We have seen some declines over the course of 2022 for the Nikkei, and that continued in session today despite uh, the change in guidance around uh, the inflation outlook and growth. You can see we are pulling back by almost a third of a percent on Japanese stocks uh, across the rest of the market. A patch of uh, green we are seeing on the boards. That's really just contained around Shanghai, but Hong Kong. And also Australia on the board's tracking a little bit weaker in session. But we do have that lack of leadership from the United States. The markets are out of action for the Martin Luther King Jr. Day yesterday. Treasury is, though, reopening in the overnight trade. You can see this is how they are now perched 1.84, so we've marched higher on that yield. And some of the sentiment seems to have heightened now around whether we could in fact have a much swifter move in interest rates. There's been some chatter about whether the Fed needs to maintain credibility, wrestle back with a 50 basis point move. This is not something that the Fed members or policymakers are leading into at this stage. But the market chatter just accelerating this yield. And don't forget, we are on the cusp of a meeting next week from the Fed. Given all of these concerns around the pace and the timing of rate hikes, you can see it is starting to again move the bond market yields 1.04% on that two years. So we've also lifted on that level as well. This has been a supportive backdrop for the dollar and you can see morning session how it plays out across the boards as greenback has it for a lot of these majors against sterling and euro which are on the back foot and also against the Japanese yen you're seeing dollar starting to climb up two tenths of a percent a little bit of weakness versus the Chinese currency. To the major commodity players enter WTI and Brent we are bouncing 1.6 percent. Also 1.2% on Brent concerns around geopolitics and supply at this point. So the market, you can see, just marching up again on these trades. The opening calls, this is how we're setting up in Europe. We are seeking a bit of a downbeat session at the start. It was a strong day yesterday despite uh, that lack of import from the U.S. trade and uh, the FTSE in particular 9 tenths higher, starting point above 7,600 points today. We had a decent trade on the French market, it was up just over 8 tenths in the Monday session. So you can see we look like we'll flip a little bit weaker. The trades from the United States not helping particularly particular that move high we saw in yields. Also giving us a sense that technology may have a challenging day later on when Wall Street uh, resumes trade. So we're watching on U.S. futures at this early hour. A little bit of weakness on that Nasdaq trade. You can see it is uh, indicated lower at this stage. In lockstep what we were seeing on those uh, Treasury trades. 172 down on the Nasdaq. Across the board as well it does indicate A little bit of wobble for some of these major markets. Uh, Don't forget Friday, the Dow also down its second negative session in a row. So the early indications are that this could be a third negative session in a row. Let's push on. U.S. equities mark the return to trading today with some key banks set to report before the open. Goldman Sachs and BNY Mellon will post four-year results today, with Bank of America and Morgan Stanley capping off the U.S. bank earnings tomorrow. It comes after JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup all posted earnings beats on Friday, but still underwhelmed and warned of a tougher economic environment ahead. Luke Hickmore joins us now, Senior Investment Manager at Aberdeen Standard Investments. Luke, it wasn't the type of earnings season kickoff from the banks that we've seen in recent quarters, some of those pandemic trends starting to fade. What do you make of just how challenging it is from here for the banks that don't have necessarily that strong M&A push, uh, the trading revenue to contend with, but may see a pick up in other areas, particularly around the loan portfolio?
3: Yeah, yeah loan growth is going to be incredibly important to them. And I think we, we saw some of that coming through from both JP Morgan and Wells, funnily enough. Um, there is a cost to grow, though, and that's what we're seeing, I think, in Q4 for some of the big money centre banks in the US to begin with. And you say outside that excellent MA revenue that they've got, they've had to acquire talent to kind of get that growth on board. Uh, I think we're seeing that cost being taken up front in Q4, uh, that the release of reserves that we're going to see as well for some of them will offset that to a degree. Uh, but it may be Q1 for JP Morgan uh, in particular to see see excellent growth. We, we, like JP Morgan, continue to like them from both a, a debt and an equity perspective.
1: Luke, we are seeing around this uh, increased interest rate expectation environment that a lot of investors have just been moving into a basket of banking stocks. But if we start to get to more interest rate rises globally, what does it do in terms of sector positioning or in uh, positioning inside the sector, I should say?
3: Uh, well, what a start of the year for for bank investors. It's, it's, it's been phenomenal for them. Um, I would caution, however, I think Higher rates are no bad thing for banks. It helps in terms of their net interest income, especially with a steeper curve. Uh, but expectations are getting well ahead of themselves in terms of the rate and size of those rate rises. I don't think we get a 50 basis from the Fed in March, for example. And I still think we only get three this year. That may start to t- t- um, to reduce the expectations for, for banks and maybe weigh on them a little bit as we get through maybe into the second half of the year. Uh, But right now, they are the hot place for investors to be, and I don't think there's much in the way of that.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm puzzled then, Luke. Given what you've said, um, and, and in particular about J.P. Morgan, I'm puzzled by the market reaction on Friday. Um, we know that the banks have had a relatively strong run up to this earnings season, but on Friday the market seemed to say, "Well, good, but just not good enough on these multiples."
3: Yeah, and I suppose that the whole market at what 20 times multiple in the U.S know, yeah, Banks, I think, still look pretty reasonable um, in a 10 or 11 context where, where you can get um, a, as a broad basket of banks out there. For things like JP Morgan, maybe a little bit of disappointment around the revenue growth and the cost growth. But as I said, I think you've got to buy in that growth. The costs are going to come forward. Uh, I think investors have moved past it pretty quick. And Wells Fargo, which, let's be honest, is a bank that's got its problems 21 percent year to date. That's a pretty big a positive indicator from investors.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I thought Wells Fargo topping expectations was quite the highlight given what we've seen from this bank over recent months. But yesterday was also interesting given that the US markets were closed we had a day when the European markets and the FTSE managed to put in quite a strong session. And it does seem as though there is um, money now starting to move from North America to European markets, looking for a valuation opportunity. What then does that mean for European banks, which have started to rise, but clearly are nowhere near the highs we're seeing in the US?
3: Again, um, the the problem problem with European banks is a stagnant economy. And and it's going to be a long time before Europe sees the kind of growth rates. I mean, we we may top 3.9%, I guess, in in Europe this year. uh, This is a recovery trade rather than its underlying structural growth. There's still a lot of problems there. But as you say, they they kind of look cheap. 0.7 price to book is very good value versus one and a half in the US m um, and activity, as you mentioned, is picking up within the banks as well. But but I would perhaps look maybe at the UK experience. I'd be more consumer focused for this rate rising period. Uh, you want to grab hold of those improving NIIs, those improving interest rate situations for the banks themselves and loan growth. And I, I think the UK plays very, very well into that. Uh, NatWest, uh, Barclays, Lloyds. Even HSBC, who are continuing with a massive buyback programme, I think they are probably better value than an awful lot of European banks, where I would just stick with the major uh, country leaders like BNP, for example.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So so you've, you've pretty much named all of the uh, UK banks, um, the major uh, banks uh, on the London market. Um, you've mentioned BNP. You've mentioned JP Morgan. Who else do you like?
3: Well, I, I suppose we have liked a lot of the peripheral banks up till now. So the BBVA's of this world, Santander as well, and some of Intesa's and Unicredito over in Italy. The Italian ones we've, we've backed off uh, from a credit perspective, which is what, what I invested in, in, in recent weeks with political uncertainty coming up around the president. Um, and, and some of the more uh, riskier peripheral areas like Turkey have been a really difficult place to invest uh, over the last year. But I think if you stick to those majors, as I say BP in France, I, I like Deutsche Bank in Germany, I like Commerce Bank in Germany, those improving situations too, I think will really reward investors over the next few years.
1: Luke, one of the biggest stories in the banks this week has been the reputational risk around Credit Suisse yet again and the departure of the chairman. How do you put that into context? Because we've been dealing with bank culture since the global financial crisis and there's been a series of missteps from various banks over the years. How does this one, Credit Suisse, the latest scandal the bank, fit into that context?
3: Well, I think for a start, it shows you as soon as any whiff of a scandal, whoever it involves goes. Um, banks these days need to be very clean in their attitude, very, very clean in their in their governance. And ESG right at the top of investors uh, thinking at the moment that is crucial for them. So, you know, Credit Suisse have had a pretty unfortunate couple of years. Uh, and then for the, for the chairman to go, it's not great for them. But I do think, you know, the the... The guy coming in has got such a great reputation. We're, we're invested in their debt. Uh, we quite like them down the capital structure for Credit Suisse. I, I think there's still room for them to recover. Um, but, you know, that, that governance needs to improve. And, you know, any slip, you get punished very, very quickly.
0: Yeah, Uh, just, I think, as Citigroup found out on Friday on that decline on profits. Luke, it's been a pleasure catching up. Thank you for helping us. Uh, Luke Hickmore, Senior Investment Manager at Aberdeen uh, Standard Investments. Um, We need to take a break at this point. We'll be back in just a moment. Still to come, Germany's Foreign Minister gears up for a, quote, serious dialogue with her Russian counterpart as Western leaders double down on their support for Kiev Uh, And just a reminder, do catch up with the programme on the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. The CEO of French energy giant EDF, uh, Jean-Bernard Levy, says he is shocked at a government order to sell more energy to competitors at below market prices. Shares fell as much as 25% on the news on Friday. In a staff memo seen by Reuters, uh, Levy, who says the government's decision could harm the firm's earnings, says he attempted to convince ministers to pursue a different line of action, including targeted support to exposed and vulnerable companies. Meanwhile, in the UK, um, there are reports that the government may pay energy providers in order to protect consumers from rising energy prices. The FT has a story saying energy suppliers have proposed that the government issues direct payments to them when wholesale prices uh, balloon, so they don't have to hike prices for consumers. The government has reportedly said the plan looks plausible and logical, but holds risks. One assumes on that basis, and I'm editorialising here, that when the price drops, those very same companies will be paying money back to the government. Yeah, don't think so, do you? But anyway, let's keep an eye on that story, because I think that crosses a certain number of boundaries. Uh, Germany's Foreign Minister Annalina Baerbock says Russia will pay a high price for any attack on Ukraine. During a visit to Kiev, Baerbock uh, affirmed Europe's commitment to Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty and said she is ready for a serious dialogue with Moscow. She will meet with her counterparts uh, or her counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, in the Russian capital today. Uh, Aneta joins us now and can tell us a little bit more about what's expected here and um, Aneta even as the UK seems to be committing hardware and specialist troops to Ukraine at this point we don't hear a similar commitment from Germany could that change after the meeting today do you think
2: well, probably not, because it's, it's a highly contentious issue to deliver hard goods on the ground to Ukraine. It probably also would mean a, a further escalation of the crisis. Ukraine obviously was asking for weapons from Germany, which was declined by Annalena Baerbock, who visited Ukraine just yesterday. So what she's saying, she's insisting on a diplomatic uh, way to solve the crisis, and she wants to uh, revive the so-called Normandy Format, which is a uh, trialogue, more or less, between Russia, Germany, and uh, France to solve the Ukraine crisis. But she's also saying that in case there is an escalation, Nord Stream 2 is uh, ob- obviously part of the um, part of the game. And here in Germany, at least the Green Party is calling very loudly for a... Um, closure and never opening of Nord Stream 2 in case there would be an invasion from Russia in the Ukraine. Just take a listen of what Annalena Baerbock had to say on the issue yesterday. To We also have geostrategic implications with regard to this project, Nord Stream 2, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it here all the time. And that is why we, as the German federal government, stand by the joint declaration with the USA. And should there be further escalations on the Russian side, we will take appropriate measures together with our partners accordingly. So, what we can expect from today's talk is probably a very hard line from Annalena Baerbock when it comes to finding a compromise, because clearly she does not uh, give a lot, or at least what we know so far, to the Russians. Uh, As of now, she's saying that in case there is a further escalation, there will be serious. Uh, threats and also sanctions coming in. Um, the CDU, obviously, no longer part of the government, is also speculating about um, excluding Russia from the SWIFT, the payment system, which would essentially mean that they are excluded from international payments altogether, at least when it comes to um, a banking system. And obviously, uh, Nord Stream 2 is a huge issue, but it's it's a very tricky thing because given that the gas prices are already at record highs, the gas storages are almost empty here on the continent. To um, threaten Putin with a gas stream, too, could also really fire back on the continent when it comes to energy security. So I guess that is all what they're keeping in mind uh, currently. But at the same time, what I'm hearing as well from Berlin, um, they need to find a common approach when it comes to Russia because clearly um, Germany not having a common approach um, might also endanger Europe um, to find a clear stance on how to deal with such a crisis because clearly Putin seems to test the waters here as well, how firm and how committed Europe is when it comes to um, solving that escalation at the border of Ukraine. Karen?
1: Annetta, thank you very much for running us through the story there. Elsewhere, COVID-19 has deepened the erosion of trust in traditional institutions and exacerbated the polarisation already prevalent in many Western societies. That's according to BlackRock CEO Larry Fink. who used his investor letter this year to laud the power of capitalism and to announce the launch of a centre for stakeholder capitalism. Uh, Fink effectively responding that stakeholder capitalism is not politics. It's not a social or ideological agenda. It is not work. So talking about this just being about profits effectively, about pure capitalism. Meanwhile, governments and the media have fueled a vicious cycle of distrust, leading to greater expectations on businesses to lead. That is according to Edelman's 2022 Trust Barometer. It says 67% of people believe they are lied to by journalists and two-thirds think the same of their government leaders. Our colleague, Juliana, discussed the report with CEO Richard Edelman.
4: So I think that... Um it's actually tied to the pandemic. Um, The reality is that as of May 2020, our mid-year Edelman Trust Barometer uh, showed the government was the most trusted at 65 points. And it was the only institution large enough to deal with a crisis equivalent to World War II. And here we are now uh, 18 months later and um, for business to emerge as the most trusted, it's because of competence. Business is 53 points more trusted on competence than government. And so government has to do better in dealing with the pandemic. That's straightforward. You
2: know, what was interesting in the report was looking at um, the difference in trust uh, rankings, trust scores across different countries. Um, There's a fascinating gap in trust between China and the U.S., with China strongly outperforming the U.S. when it comes to domestic trust. What does that say about the future of our democracies?
4: Well, I think that um, the trust barometer this year shows clearly the uh, decline of democracies. And there's not a single one that has um, more than 50% of the population believing that they'll be better off in five years, and also not a single one that is trusted by its population. Uh, Contrast that to single party states, uh, whether monarchies or um, China, and you see that the world falls into two parts, autocracies and democracies. And democracies are deeply underperforming. And what's fascinating is, in fact, in developing democracies, how much more trusted business is than uh, government. Forty points in Mexico and South mm. Africa.
2: That gap in trust between business and government is pretty striking in terms of the responsibility that businesses have. Um, how do you think about the role of business moving forward given how much trust is in them right now relative to other institutions?
4: Well, um, you know, we actually thought that this year might show uh, that you know we had reached a limit to what uh, business is expected to do. Just the opposite. By five to one, people want more business involvement, whether it's in sustainability, race and diversity, uh, upskilling or, or wage levels. And all of those are within the remit of uh, business to do. And what's exciting is also that um, there's a sense that, uh, in fact, CEOs are supposed to be public faces on these issues and that they need to speak up on behalf of their consumers on behalf of the employees, and also that uh, shareholders really care about uh, companies standing up on issues. Richard Edelman there
0: on his uh, trust barometer. And of course, it's something that he produces uh, every year as we run up to the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos. On a programming note, of course, There will not be a physical Davos this year, but the World Economic Forum uh, will still bring us a number of uh, top private and public sector leaders. Uh, This Friday, I will be hosting a a special panel on the global economic outlook. Uh, Panelists include ECB President Christine Lagarde, IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Gorgieva, the Brazilian economy minister, uh, Paulo Guedes, uh, or Paulo Guedes um, Indonesian finance minister, Sri Mulyani Indrawati. So do make a point of joining us if you can. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to
3: cnbc.com.
1: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.